0: I see the possibility that technology is going to enable a massive surge of human capital. And this surge is so large that there's no historical comparison. And what I mean by that is that we've got 1.7 billion people in the world that are unbanked. They have no access to The world of the internet in terms of e-commerce and things like that, that's going to change.
1: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them, the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is a distinguished professor of finance at Duke University, who has an eight for eight track record in forecasting recessions in the US using his own invention known as the yield curve indicator but who is also involved in crypto and blockchain technology, so you are really in for a treat today. Please enjoy our conversation with Professor Campbell Harvey. Cam, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our mini series Into the World of Global Macro, where we relax our usual systematic and rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in the Global and historical framework, and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years. And ultimately, how this will impact all of us as investors, and how we should best prepare our portfolios. So we're super excited to dive into many different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you are the inventor of the Yield Curve Indicator, which has a tremendous track record of identifying upcoming recessions. But let me kick it off with kind of a 30,000 feet question, and that's just sort of where do you think we are in the bigger global macro picture, because at least to me, it feels like it's a blend of things we've seen before, whether it be the 1920s, Japanese bubble, or the late 80s, um, tech bubble, great financial crisis. There's a little bit of everything at the moment. And on top of that, of course, we have a global pandemic, which makes it an even more unique time frame. So how do you see it right now?
0: So I like your characterization, a bit of everything. However, It's compressed. So, all of this bad news is compressed. I call it the great compression, where we see these numbers that are just off the charts. I just can't imagine the econometricians in the future having to deal with these observations that are just extreme uh, outliers compared to the past. So, obviously, every single recession is different. And this one, has got a lot of characteristics that are unusual uh, compared to previous uh, recessions. So, for example, we knew exactly when it began. And that was February 2020. And it was obvious to everybody. And it's often the case with a recession that you don't know when it actually begins. And you certainly don't know when it ends. It could be years after the end of a recession that it's finally dated by the National Bureau of Economic Research. And we know the exact start because we know the cause. And the cause is a biological cause. So that makes this recession different in that it's not, for example, our financial institutions taking extreme leverage, doing a poor job of risk management, being offsides in so many different ways, and essentially putting us into the global financial crisis. No. We can't point fingers at any particular firm, any particular industry. This pandemic, when it hit, is more akin to a natural disaster, and we fell off the cliff, and a very sharp cliff. So compression means that we go into a deep recession, but we also come out of it. And the numbers that we will see coming out of this recession will also be noteworthy and and new records for for positive uh, increases. So it's also interesting that in the global financial crisis, we didn't really know when it would end. Indeed, in the U.S., the official end was in 2009, but unemployment continued to go up and it peaked in 2010. And indeed, we didn't get back to the rate of unemployment before the Great Recession started, it took actually nine years. So, an incredibly long time. Whereas this time, we actually have a good idea of what the end game actually looks like. And it's a combination of things, but the main item is a vaccine. And when we have a vaccine deployed, that's the all clear a signal effectively and go back to how we were operating before. So so given that the cause is biological and the solution is biological, it's compressed into a short period of time, and it does make this recession very unique.
2: But what's crazy, the cause was biological, and Niels has already alluded to your famous yield curve model, which for those who don't know is, I believe, uh, you look at the difference between the the 10-year and the 3-month kind of US risk-free rate effectively, did actually predict this recession even though the cause is biological. so I've got a kind of couple of related questions about in the model cam if, if I may. the first is I think someone famous once said something like every price of the financial markets is a, is a combination of, uh, of an expectation or a forecast and a risk premium. So I'd like to kind of understand how your model sort of disentangles those those two effects and, and the second is given that the, the the curve indicator did seem to forecast this recession, do you think that's because there perhaps would have been a recession anyway, It'll be probably perhaps a mild one because we were kind of overdue for one, you know, quote unquote? Or is there something about the shape of the yield curve that actually is almost causal and makes it more likely that that, that are, there'll be a, a recession or, or that, that it'll be more severe than it perhaps otherwise would have been? And I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. For example, it makes it harder for banks to make profits if the yield curve is very flat. So... Yeah, there you go. Two pretty big questions there, but uh, I know it's a subject that that you know a lot about, so I'd love to hear your answers.
0: Sure, and and there's a lot of questions you just asked. Let me me tackle them. So it is true that actually June 30th of 2019, I went on the record that the yield curve had inverted, so the 10-year rate was lower than the three-month rate for a full quarter. And at that point, I said, Code Red, that uh, this indicator has got a very good track record. So it's based on my dissertation at the University of Chicago. And at the time, I was using data from the 1960s, and the indicator was four for four. And my dissertation committee was rightfully skeptical, saying, Well, you got four observations, maybe you're lucky. But they were persuaded. I guess a a few uh, things persuaded them. Number one, almost nobody got that double dip of recession in the early 80s. And my model actually got it quite nicely. And number two, it wasn't just a statistical model. It was based upon economic theory and fairly widely accepted economic theory. So that really helped. So they signed off and then we go out of sample. So I graduated in 1986, and the model was challenged a number of times. The first challenge was October 1987, stock market crashed. Economists believed there'd be a recession in 1988, and there wasn't. And it went to uh, forecast correctly the next three recessions, including the global financial crisis. So I'm sitting in... My office at Duke in in June uh, of 2019 declaring bread, saying, "Well, this indicator is seven out of seven. It's got a long out of sample record of accuracy. So it's not that I just backtest overfit something. No, no, no. This has been out of sample validated uh, since uh, 1986, and it not only got the seven recessions." But it hasn't had a false signal yet. Of course, it's a simple model, and it could be wrong. But nevertheless, given that you've got something with a 7 out of 7, it inverts. That means there's a lot of risk, and you need to take it seriously. And that's exactly what happened. I think what's different in 2019, and it's linked to your idea of causality, was that there was a causal channel. So in the past, people had ignored my indicator. So the yield curve inverted before the global financial crisis, and the Fed did nothing. They did nothing for a year, looking at an inversion for a full year. Uh, And they had to act eventually when the economy started to to fall apart. So this time was different, that all of a sudden I was being featured in the media, as somebody who had an indicator that was seven out of seven. And I think that it actually had an effect. So uh, Duke University does a a survey of CFOs uh, in the U.S. and around the world. And at that time, and shortly after the inversion, over 50% believed there'd be a recession in 2020. And if you added in the first quarter of 21, it was like 80%. And you're correct, this business cycle was long, right? It was over 10 years, the longest time from a trough since the NBER started collecting data in the 1850s. So the business cycle was long. You've got an inversion, and the causal causal channel is interesting that when you're faced with an indicator like this, if you're a corporation, are you going to pull the trigger on a major capital investment, go to the bank, increase your leverage in the face of a yield curve inversion with increased probability of a recession? And you yeah, just like, no. Like in the global financial crisis, the CEO could get in front of the shareholders and credibly say, we were just totally surprised. And so was everybody. So it's like safety in terms of the crowd. If it was the case that we went into recession after the yield curve inversion this time and a CEO got up to the shareholders and apologized saying, well, I was just surprised by this, they'd be laughed out of the room. So this was well covered. And I do think that that sort of um, kind of conservatism or frugality uh, started to decrease capital investment Consumers, the same thing. You know, why max out my credit card when there's a possibility of a recession and I could easily be laid off? And all of this tends to reduce economic growth. But this is really important. We'll never know if the yield curve forecasted a recession accurately uh, because we just don't know the counterfactual without the COVID. So I believe the expectations were widespread that we were going to have a mild recession. So the yield curve inverted for a couple of quarters, which is relatively short inversion. It wasn't a deep inversion. So it kind of made sense that it would be uh, a slowdown or a brief recession. But then something external hit. And look, um, there's often a trigger that isn't in the model. So the... OPEC oil embargo in the early 1970s is another example of something that was unexpected. So I guess no matter what, uh, how you look at it, the model is now uh, eight out of eight. But you're correct that the yield curve inversion obviously did not forecast a pandemic. As for the mechanism, mechanism super super uh, straightforward, and you can look at it in so many different ways. For example, this inversion was largely the result of the long-term rates going down. And we all know that the U.S. 10-year bond is the bellwether flight-to-safety bond. So when people get nervous, risk increases, people pile into the bond, the rate goes down. And that was the mechanism that kind of led to the inversion. But more generally, interest rates, you think about interest rates, they are basically an expected inflation component. There's an expected real component that's linked to growth. And there's also risk premium, uh, as you mentioned. So there's many different ways for this to actually happen. And my dissertation looked at the real component. So if you expect lower real growth, then that real rate is lower. And that's kind of standard in these models. And that is the mechanism that I pursued. So final thing I'll say is... I haven't done research on that model since 1991, though I always get asked about it. And I have to update it, I guess, uh, every year at least, or even more frequently in, in 2019. But it's just a model. And we know these models are just simplifications of the world. And I'm not saying that this model will never have a false signal. That would be unscientific. Uh, it will certainly have a false signal. And indeed, it's probably more likely if we continue on this trajectory where the Treasury and the Fed are effectively merged and we talk about things like yield curve control.
3: You know, these uh, recessions, they are a tricky beast, a tricky research object, in my opinion, because there's not a single recession that is exactly like the one that we've observed before. And everyone seems to be caused, or every recession is caused by a different trigger. This one is special because it's caused by the pandemic. There's economies such as Australia that didn't have a recession in 30 years. In other developed markets, we tend to think that you know every four, five, six, seven years, whatever the case may be, there is a recession, and the recession is necessary because it has a healing effect on the economy. It's kind of like you inhale, you exhale, and you know you 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 need to exhale with that recession and then start afresh. But my, and this may be a complete, uh, maybe a disqualified observation, but ever since Bretton Woods, there seem to be more severe recessions, crises, financial crises, and they occur with greater regularity. And every crisis that comes after the, the one that happened before is a level worse. My concern is, and maybe the question to you is, are we going to be able to be healing with the current recession, because, you know, the amounts of money that central banks and governments are throwing at the problem, I'm at a loss of even counting the digits in that figure. It's just some staggeringly large number. And I'm not sure what the end game of that is going to be and whether we'll
0: really get get out of this in good shape. Yeah, those are excellent points. First, if you actually were talking to the macroeconomists in the mid 2000s, they would actually have a different take. So they were advocating this idea of the great moderation. And looking back at the business cycle from that perspective, the 2001 recession was trivial. I don't think there was a negative year over year uh, real GDP growth in that recession. And going back further, 1991, 1990, 1991, again, like a trivial recession. And at that point, they were thinking, well, maybe we should be patting ourselves on the back that our great macroeconomic engineering has reduced the volatility of the business cycle. And there's a lot of models that kind of showed that using the data up to, let's say, 2005. But then the Great Recession hit and the global financial crisis. And that was a real puzzle. And these economists had a hard time explaining. They just didn't know uh, what the answer was, and it certainly didn't fall out of their models. But even the Great Recession, if you look at the drawdown in GDP, the drawdown... It's only 5%. So I know that people were comparing it to the Great Depression at the time, but we're talking about a relatively minor uh, drawdown in GDP, even though it, it is kind of the example number one of business cycle of volatility. So we get to today, and today, again, we've seen all of this bad news compressed, where We will see a a very substantial uh, drawdown in the second quarter uh, GDP. And I guess the issue is well, we do have some insurance mechanisms. So traditionally, governments have provided uh, some insurance to kind of smooth things over. However, the amount of insurance is much different than previous recessions. So, I guess, what is the implication of that? And what sort of risks does that pose for what I call the economic path forward? And the risks are substantial. So on the positive side, think about, again, the difference between this recession and the global financial crisis, where it was pretty repugnant that we had to bail out the banks that essentially caused the crisis with taxpayer money. So they were offside, and we had to basically bail them out. And we all know that that creates a pretty big moral hazard problem. So you reward uh, the banks for doing a bad job. They'll do a bad job in the future and expect to be bailed out again. Whereas this time, again, there's nobody you can point to as being offside. So the threat was to a lot of businesses that were actually high quality businesses. They weren't over levered, but they got hit with, again, something like a natural uh, disaster. And in a natural disaster, whether it's a flood or a hurricane, there is some relief that uh, government gives. And the idea is to provide bridge financing so that high quality company doesn't go out of business. I have no problem with low-quality companies going out of business. But you don't want high-quality companies going out of business because then you compromise growth in the future. So that's really important. So if a lot of high-quality companies went out of business in the U.S. or any part of the world, that takes away from growth in the future, and it's a structural problem. So the logic of the policymakers was, let's provide that bridge. We know that this is a short crisis because we've got high confidence that a vaccine will be deployed. Even though we know 15 uh, only 15% of vaccines succeed, there's, on, there's over 100 in the research stage and over 10 in the testing stage. So something is going to work. So we can provide that bridge uh, financing in the short term and try to avoid this structural downside. However, and again, however, when you do that, so when you provide money for unemployment, it might be forgivable loans to corporations, you increase debt. And when you increase debt, you are simply shifting income from the future to the present. And on top of that, it's not just the fiscal side. There's also the monetary side. And uh, the amount of quantitative easing this time around is effectively unlimited. The Federal Reserve Chair basically said uh, he will do what it takes. So you've got a situation in the global financial crisis, there was QE, but it was limited. And I think that a number of people are looking at the experience of the global financial crisis and, oh, well, we spent a lot fiscally. We did this quantitative easing, which is money creation. And, oh, well, there's no inflation. So let's do it again. And the problems, well, there's many problems. Well, one problem is that after the global financial crisis, we had the opportunity to pay back some of that fiscal debt. But no, 10 years in a row. The U.S. is running very substantial deficits and increasing the amount of debt to about $200,000 per taxpayer in the U.S. That's an issue. And also, uh, the amount of monetary stimulus that actually happened in terms of the QE, the balance sheet of the Fed only began to decrease uh, in 2018, and the rate of decrease is very small. So people kind of look at that and say, well, it, it worked in the global financial crisis, therefore it will work in this particular crisis, and I'm not one to extrapolate from a single observation. I think it's incredibly dangerous. So the amount of debt is far different than it was in the global financial crisis. The amount of QE is far different than it was in the global financial crisis. And I do believe that one of the risks in terms of the path forward is inflation. And yes, we didn't see it after the global financial crisis. And no, we don't see it right now. And no, it isn't reflected in a break-even inflation rates. But I believe that policymakers really will avoid tax increases. To raise taxes is toxic in terms of your electability. So it's easier to have some sort of inflation and blame it on the pandemic or something like that. And that is going to be a complicating factor. Inflation obviously is bad in terms of... In terms of economic growth, and it's especially bad in terms of income inequality because the people paying the inflation tax are the people that can least afford it.
3: It creates a bunch of problems, inflation, and you know, it probably nobody knows what the inflation rate, as you say, going forward is going to be. Is it going to be at targets two percent? Is it going to be four percent? I guess you know, those levels would probably be levels one could live with for a period of time, even though, you know, mind you, if you had 4% inflation for 10 years in a row, you compound that. That is a lot, of, a lot of purchasing power lost there already, right? But what if it starts to get out of control and inflation becomes way, way higher? The end of this is devaluation of currency, destruction of the, you know, whatever currency you're looking at, be it the euro, be it the dollar, be it the yen. And we've kind of like, we, we've had that before. <laughs> We're going back to that. So what um this is this is a really, really scary
0: picture. So we've been there before, and it's amazing how short policymakers' memories are. And it's not just that the US and the UK have been there before, but many other countries. And not you don't need to go back to the 1980s. So you can see this mechanism uh playing out in different parts of the world. That said, uh, the U.S. is special. So it's special in a number of regards. Number one, the economy is the single most important economy in the world in terms of driving world economic growth. Number two, uh, it has been the driver of innovation in the world. Number three, the currency is the de facto numeraire currency in the world. And number four, much of the U.S. debt is held by non-U.S. persons. So if you think about that, if the rates go up, obviously the the value of that debt uh, goes down. Uh, So you're effectively expropriating. And then, as you say, if there is a currency devaluation, that also works against the foreign holders. So, I think that, again, the U.S. is different, but I do see this possibility of some unexpected inflation as a as a major risk to the future economic growth. It's again uh, interesting that the expectations have almost completely discounted that possibility in in terms of the marketplace. It's uh, definitely not the generally believed belief, but as you full well know, that's where people that are doing investment management really shine. They have a a different view.
1: I'm completely in agreement with you in terms of the inflation. I actually also think personally that it's going to show up much quicker than anyone can actually uh, imagine. I want to go back to one thing you said earlier and I want to also ask you another question. So I know you said that this crisis, nobody could have seen it. It's a pandemic. And so it's no one's fault. But And therefore, the moral hazard maybe is not as big as it could have been. But on the other hand, I would say we've seen all these companies buying back their own stocks, not being prepared financially for the unforeseen. And isn't it the responsibilities of these well-paid CEOs of always expecting the unexpected? I mean, that's how we do our investment strategies because we're rules-based we live by the rule you know uh, knowing what you don't know I mean that's kind of how you should look at things so so I you know so I don't know if we can say that uh, these actions are not again once again benefiting the 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 one percent I think they are even though there is obviously some help broader the other thing I wanted to ask you is just a little bit about so obviously the Fed, and certainly in, in terms of your work with the yield curve, the Fed is is an important player. But I'm sure you know much more about this than the, we do. And that is, this is not the first time we've seen... I mean, I think a lot of people believe that this is the first time the Fed is, is being very active and powerful. But as far as I recall, it's also happened uh, you know, in the 60s and the 70s. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit to how that occurred and how it perhaps was different to... What they're doing today? Sure.
0: So I teach a course in risk management. And the very first lecture, we talk about systemic risk. And it's a wide open lecture, there's no formal lecture notes for it. And it's mainly just uh, a brainstorming session about what a systemic risk actually is. And systemic risk is the sort of risk that is just very difficult to hedge. So think about a thermonuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. It doesn't matter where you are, you're going to be affected by it. You could be on some mountain in New Zealand, you're going to be affected by it. So that's a a systemic uh, type of risk. And all of these risks are, are a little different. Obviously, a nuclear bomb happens very quickly and the effect is almost immediate. Some risks are, are slow moving. So there's a risk that our planet degrades so much because of climate change that it turns into a desert. That is something that would happen over a very long period of time. And as we know, it's difficult to get people energized about managing that type of a risk. Or we might have like uh, the science fiction asteroid heading to Earth. But we might have like 100 years of warning and time to prepare for that. But we always end up with pandemic. And pandemic is a a known systemic risk. And it is one of the easier ones to actually mitigate. And it is true that we have a long history of pandemics and the most significant pandemic in recent history obviously was the Spanish flu in 1918 and it's it's very interesting looking at the stock market around there you can't really tell what the impact was on the stock market when you've got a pandemic that in contrast to this pandemic was largely killing younger people and the size of the death rate just enormous Compared to what we have today, but we've had many other things that could have turned into pandemics. We've had a number of scares, whether it's SARS, MERS, HIV. There's many sort of warnings about this. Yet, and you're correct. Why wouldn't this work it in into the risk management of these companies? And it's only about 50% of the companies in the S&P 500 even mention the risk of pandemic in their disclosures, the risk disclosures, which is kind of extraordinary. So this, unfortunately, um, is a very painful and costly wake-up call. So I think that this is something in the future that more companies will be prepared for And on top of that, given the cost, and the cost is enormous, the cost in the U.S. is something like $10 billion a day. So I think there will also be some risk management coming on the government side to make sure, for example, that we fund initiatives to develop vaccines quickly. So this 14 to 18 months is completely unsatisfactory if you're burning $10 billion a day. So I think that we will invest the new technologies to kind of speed up dramatically the process. If we can map the DNA of COVID-19 in two weeks, then we should be able to develop a vaccine in two weeks. So in the future, I think that we will be investing in those uh, technologies. Testing technologies also are super important in terms of mitigating the spread of a vaccine. So I think that you'll see risk management coming from corporations that we hadn't seen before. But I think in particular, we will see risk management coming from our governments to be ready to go. I call what's happening today in terms of the COVID-19, the fire drill. So, And what I mean by that is that it's very important to learn from this particular pandemic. This is not, you cannot assume, this is a once-in-a-century event that you don't need to worry about and your children don't need to worry about it, maybe your grandchildren. No, this Could happen again, and it could happen sooner rather than later, and it could happen in an even more deadly way. So, I believe that we need to invest in that risk management to mitigate this happening again. The economic cost, the human cost is enormous, and I think that that would be worthy of investment.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think risk managers and also regulators tend to kind of fight the last battle. So uh, I, even myself, I think when things started to look unpleasant in early March, one of the first things I did was go back to my 2008 playbook and I went to the, the bank and took out quite a lot of physical cash, which now I cannot spend because everyone's preferring you to use a credit card, which is obviously less likely to transmit any infection. I'd want to sort of pivot away slightly from the, the, the risks that are very hard to hedge and, and go back to a risk that may be potentially easier to hedge, but um, I'm not sure how you hedge it And that's the risk you've already alluded to, the risk of inflation, which is kind of what we'd expect from this huge quantity of of money that's going into the system. So the traditional playbook for hedging inflation risk, obviously you've got inflation risk bonds, uh, linked bonds, they tend to be expensive. We can have a long academic debate about whether stocks are a good inflation risk or not. And, you know, the equity risk premium looks pretty miserable at the moment anyway, so that's not maybe so good. So then we're into the world of potentially real assets like real estate. But but then also, you know, you, you we talked to, to probably some other people in this podcast series, and they will start banging on about things like gold, and also something that I know that y- you've been um, looking at in the last few years, which is Bitcoin. So, you know, as someone who's thinking about hedging inflation risk, you know, in the world today, where do those different assets fit into my portfolio, or is there something I'm missing?
0: So, it's really important in actually addressing this issue is not just to look at inflation, but to look how unexpected inflation impacts different asset prices. So, so what we're talking about, what we need to hedge is unexpected inflation. It's easy to get expected inflation because that's in, it should be in bond yields. So what the danger is, is something happens that's unexpected. So if inflation next year went to 3%, that would be completely unexpected. So the inflation rate now is about 1.5% in the U.S., and that would be a very substantial surprise. So the first thing that's important to do, and this is actually linked to some current research that I'm working on. Because I believe inflation or unexpected inflation is one of the major risks that we're going to face in the next few years, what I'm doing is looking at different assets, different asset classes to look at their exposure to unexpected inflation. It's challenging to do because inflation is is really complicated. So sometimes it's bad news. So it would be bad news if inflation in 2021 was 3%. But in other stages of the business cycle, it's good news because it's an indication that the economy is recovering, prices are going up, and it's just a sign of of vigor. So it's incredibly difficult. And on top of that, there's the issue of what is inflation? So inflation is different for different people. We measure it in arbitrary baskets. And often we don't take certain things into account, like the quality of different goods has changed through times. There are crude adjustments for that, but I'm not convinced that they're that accurate. So so number one, I think you figure out what the sensitivities are of different assets, and that's going to help you. And you need to be very careful because what you see as a sensitivity in the 1970s might not be the sensitivity going forward in 2020. So stocks are controversial. Again, you shouldn't look at overall stocks. You need to look at sectors and figure out which ones are most immune to inflation. Commodities have traditionally been a uh, a purported hedge for unexpected inflation. My research on that suggests that it depends on the commodity. So I would not buy a basket of commodities. I would probably fine-tune it to the commodities that are most relevant and exposed to unexpected inflation real assets one issue is the data is rather sparse and for the average investor some of those assets are are difficult to obtain gold rob you know i've done a lot of research on gold and gold is a notoriously unreliable hedge for just about everything the Gold volatility is about 15%. The same volatility as the stock market. And sometimes it works. And then when it works, people trumpet great uh, hedging ability of gold. And then sometimes it doesn't work and you don't hear anything from the same people. So gold is unreliable. And then the last thing on your list is uh, cryptocurrency. And yeah, you're correct that I've been very much in that space for a number of years, since 2013, I've taught a blockchain course at Duke University called Innovation in Crypto Ventures, And I also teach a second course now called Tech-Driven Transformation of Business. And, and both those courses are, are linked to distributed ledger technology. I don't really talk about Bitcoin investment. I talk about blockchain as a solution to many problems that exist today that could greatly transform our economy. The problem with the cryptocurrency is that there's no history. So this is actually the first recession observation for cryptocurrency. So people were thinking, oh, well, well, by cryptocurrency, it's algorithmic, so it will naturally be a hedge. And then if you look at the data in March... What was happening to these purported hedges? So uh, the stock market is tanking, and so is the cryptocurrency. So it proved with at least that influential observation to fail as a hedge. And the reason is that the people that are the marginal investors in cryptocurrencies right now are, are speculators. And those speculators are just basically buying it because it's got 100% volatility. You've got effectively natural leverage, and and they're betting on a big move. And when you go to a risk-off situation, you dump your risky assets. And that's exactly what we saw in March. People dumped equities, and people dumped cryptocurrencies. They even dumped gold. And and then went into the the safe haven assets like the the U.S. Uh, treasuries. So so I think again this is very challenging to design a hedge. Obviously, linkers or or tips are are set to the inflation rate, but you're correct; they are expensive. I think for portfolio managers, you need to be creative, to take an approach where you look at multiple assets and fine tune your portfolio to basically get that hedge to unexpected inflation.
3: You've said that the US is special because of the status of its currency being the world's reserve currency. But all the other countries seem to be drawing the shorter end of the stick always, especially if there is an inflationary environment, which would hurt emerging markets in particular. Do you think that, you know, maybe some of those economies, let's say China, Russia, somebody else, right, they will develop their own crypto currency, not Bitcoin, but their own central bank, whatever crypto bank issued currency that is limited in supply, cannot be inflated. Maybe it's backed by something. I I don't know what that could be. And then they will go to the world and say, hey, look at this. Here's a really hard currency, a stable cryptocurrency that cannot be played around with. I think it's time to get away from the US dollar. What do you guys think? Should we be doing trade in that currency? And if they get a lot of acceptance for that, then this may then be a problem
0: for the US dollar. So let me make a couple of remarks. I said that the US dollar is the de facto numerar currency in the world right now. And it probably will be in the near term. But I think just looking at history, it's really naive to think that the US will be the dominant currency forever. So things change. So economic tides come in and go out. While it is the dominant, Right now, it will be challenged. And on this idea of what we call CBDCs, so central bank digital currencies, every major central bank is working on some sort of crypto version of their own currency. So it just makes sense. It doesn't make any sense that in the future, we will be carrying a wallet That's got like physical cash in it, physical credit cards, physical driver's license, passport, all this stuff is, is, will be a relic. It'll be in museums. So it's obvious that that's not the world of the future. So crypto is definitely the way to go. And you could just think of it as a digital uh, currency. And the way that it will happen, and we've already seen this happen with the rise of so-called stable coins. For example, JP Morgan has announced a stable coin. And it's very simple. It's a crypto that is 100% collateralized with US dollar. And that can move that around very quickly and cheaply and get around a number of the problems with the traditional uh, systems of uh, transferring uh, money. Facebook announced their Libra project. And I know it's not very popular for Facebook to do this in terms of the degree of trust, in terms of uh, Facebook's privacy issues and other issues. But their idea was basically the same thing. and The initial idea was to have a basket of currencies 100% collateralized. There are dozens of stablecoins that are out there today, and they're effectively uh, tokens that are collateralized with something. It could be U.S. dollars, it could be gold, it could be diamonds. So there's many possibilities out there. As for a national um, government or a central bank establishing a crypto, that is just going to happen. And... I've said in the past that that's a major threat to the existing cryptos to have kind of these central banks issuing their crypto. But in contrast with the model that you uh, propose, where it would be algorithmic and out of the control of the central bank, that's not the way it's going to happen. It's basically going to be a digital version of the pound or the dollar or the euro or the yen. And the central banks will have the same control that they've had in the past in terms of increasing or decreasing the money supply. Indeed, if you think about it, it is the dream of the the macro monetary economist where with a line of code, you can do a helicopter drop into everybody's wallet, their digital wallet, a certain amount of the digital currency. It just happens instantly. There's no mailing of stimulus checks or anything like that. It just shows up immediately. And uh, I think governments will embrace this technology for another reason, and that is tax. So right now, with the value-added taxes, especially in Europe, there are just so many incentives to basically transact in cash to avoid the VAT. And then the more people do that, the higher you need to make the VAT. And then the higher the VAT, the more people will transact in cash. So if you take the cash away, then everything is done digitally and there's nowhere to hide. And that value-added tax can can actually go down uh, dramatically uh, with that. So I believe that the model that will arise is a model where it'll be kind of the same old thing, except the central banks will do this with distributed ledger technology. And of course, there's some benefits here. So cash is anonymous, and it is the number one mechanism to do criminal uh, transactions, with the digital currency far more difficult. So this idea of a government establishing either a fully collateralized currency or an algorithmic currency like Bitcoin, I think is unlikely. The whole idea of decentralized finance is that there isn't a central authority actually doing this. It happens in a peer-to-peer method with an algorithm. And I just don't think that governments will seed control of something that's so important to them their monetary policy
1: yeah i mean i think that's seems very likely that that's the way we're gonna go and and maybe in a few years we don't really need the banks because we're all going to be clients of the central banks in a sense i want to shift gear a little bit away from bitcoin and just ask you about another topic that um, i I don't know if that's something you uh, have looked at but at the moment, we've talked on on the podcast a few times about Neil House and Bill Strauss' work in The Fourth Turning. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but of course, it is about things repeating, cycles repeating, and in this case, generations. And especially The Fourth Turning is kind of the worst one. And that's, according to their work, that's exactly where we are right now. How does demographics play into all of this and generations Is that something you've taken into some of your work as well?
0: So my work is kind of widespread. And what I mean by that, uh, many different topics uh, interest me. And I guess I've learned over my career that the main job for me as a teacher is to give my students a vision of the future. So, for example, I've never used a textbook textbook for me is material that was written many years ago. And just to get into the textbook takes years. So I always push my students to the latest uh, research papers that were not even published yet to give them a vision of the future. But this is really important in terms of my students selecting a career. And again, I, I, teach tech-driven transformation of business and a student comes to me and, and says well i've got a job offer from visa and i've got a job offer from apple the career management people want me to take the visa job and it's really obvious that apple would dominate in terms of the world of fintech especially so to look at the future is difficult And you can never accurately forecast the future. But I do give some ideas to my students. And we start with the decentralized finance and fintech and what all of the problems that decentralized finance actually solves. There's just like no excuse for paying 300 basis points when you swipe a credit card, Uh, there's no reason that it takes two days to settle a stock transaction. it doesn't make any sense that we can't do micro transactions on the internet. It doesn't make any sense that it's really difficult for me to actually sell something on the internet and be paid for it. So there's all these problems that exist. I did, for example, a wire transfer the other day where I was quoted a rate that was 3% unfavorable to market rates, and I might as well have been swiping a credit card. So all of these problems uh, can be substantially mitigated with decentralized finance. But if you think of the bigger picture here, the bigger picture is what will technology actually do? How will technology transform the world? And we're seeing a little bit of that. And I heard somebody at a conference say that, well, my iPhone is the power of the supercomputer of the 1990s. And I actually did a little research on that. And it turns out that compared to like a Cray XP supercomputer, which was like the fastest supercomputer for five years in a row... Uh, at the beginning of my career, that iPhone is like a hundred times fast, hundred thousand times faster. So when you've got technology like that, when you've got machine learning, when you've got open uh, source software, things can happen really quickly. And you need to think about how that will reshape the world. And this is where Neil's Writing comes in here, and he's a deep thinker, and I admire that he thinks about these uh, different cycles. I don't really see it as a cycle. I see it as an evolution, and that evolution involves a number of different things. And one thing, you mentioned demographics, that is really important, and it's kind of obvious if you think about it, but we're going to live way longer in the future. Yet the actuarial calculations don't take that into account. So we're operating in a system where people retire at 65, and actually in Europe, it could be far less than that. A system that maybe was appropriate 50 years ago was not appropriate today, and certainly won't be appropriate in the future. And I worry a lot about this in terms of the funding of like older generations because those pensions just not going to be able to pay. They're underfunded already. And then if you add on the demographic risk, that's enormous. But on the positive side, and this is where I kind of depart from Neil's analysis, I see the possibility that technology is going to enable a massive surge of human capital. And this surge is so large that there's no historical comparison. And what I mean by that is that we've got 1.7 billion people in the world that are unbanked. They have no access to the world of the internet in terms of e-commerce and things like that. That's going to change. And I think that these digital currencies are going to help with that. But it's going to be the case that everybody will have free access to the internet. Everybody will have a smartphone. Indeed, many places in Africa, you can buy your smartphone along with a small solar panel that powers a light bulb and USB charger for your smartphone. Everybody will be enabled. And all of a sudden, that kid in some village in Africa that has got 190 IQ, but there is no school for 200 miles. That child will be enabled. They will be presented with a quality of opportunity of the scale we've never seen before. And he will be able to unleash the value of his human capital. And we're going to see many examples like that. And that's all good. For economic growth. And I'm particularly uh, bullish about this positively impacting emerging markets, but the residual effect on developed markets is pretty substantial also. So I actually don't believe that we will be continuing on this vector of slower and slower growth. We've seen it, and I think it's naive to extrapolate it. So I believe that technology will deliver a surge in particular to emerging markets, will spill over to the developed markets. The increased productivity will be striking. We will not be working 40-hour weeks in the future. There'll be a lot more leisure time. There'll be less income inequality as we've got a quality of opportunity. Technology is a great equalizer, where you've got somebody in a poor country in Latin America using the same smartphone that Bill Gates is using. So technology, I believe, is really important. I think even though we see it in front of us, we see the advances in technology, people don't do a very good job of exponential forecasting. And that's really what we're looking at. So I think that the future while there will be bumps in the road, is a lot more positive than some of the other uh, people looking at it.
1: Rob Moritz, just to be mindful of Cam's time, do you have some questions that are easier to answer in a short space of time? Although we could
3: go on for a long time. That's we we sure. could, that's but there's no easy questions, I'm afraid. So uh, Rob, how about you?
2: I think that such a brilliant and positive statement is a, a very good way to, yes. to end this, this discussion, actually, personally. I think any question I
1: could ask could would only bring a more depressing answer. So <laughs> let, let's keep things upbeat. Well, let me finish with one thing then, Cam. Just trying to put everything... Uh, because I do agree with Rob. I mean, it's kind of nice. It's not... I don't think we come across that many at the moment who have a real positive outlook at least not the circles that we follow. So I do agree with, with Rob on that. But I, I wanted to still ask you, when you put everything together that you see in your work, in your interactions with peers, etc., cetera, et cetera, the next five, 10 years from a strategic investment point of view, what does that look like in your opinion? How do people prepare themselves for, in any event, you could say, and a somewhat uncertain future right now.
0: So one thing that is kind of obvious that the investment landscape has been distorted by government and central bank influences. So to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense in Denmark that you can have a mortgage where the bank actually pays you. That to me, it's just pure distortion. And I think that we need to be very careful about the sort of structural damage that that can do in the future. It's really difficult to think about buying a very long-term bond, whether it's 10, 20, or 30 years, at the rates that are being offered uh, today, knowing that just a minor jump in inflation would just hammer your fixed-income portfolio. We've seen a very confusing equity market Where we're at an all time high in the US in February. The market tanks as you would think it should, but then it's come back very rapidly, effectively pricing a V shaped recovery, which I think is very naive. So, one thing that's really missing here, and it kind of links to my discussion of decentralized finance the investment opportunities are very limited. And one thing that's very exciting to me is the possibility of tokenizing other types of investments. And what I mean by that is there are so many financial constraints out there that it is very difficult for a small business to get a loan. The bank just isn't interested because the loan's too small. And they'll tell the small business, oh, just use your credit card. And you know how that goes. The interest rate could be like 22%. So you're looking at a really good project, and it might be returning 20%, but no, you can't do it because your cost of funds is 22%. So this idea of raising capital in alternative ways, I think will become more and more important, and it'll be less important to transact on either centralized exchanges or over-the-counter transactions with your broker. So I see the possibility of tokenizing projects, equity, um, many different things, infrastructure projects. And essentially what this does is it allows anybody to invest. So I already talked about tokenizing gold. So you could have in your wallet, you want to invest $20 in gold. Well, that's really easy to do. You've got it. So think of completely different investments that are or just in the mode of thinking about investments like stocks and bonds and maybe commodities or uh, or a few other things. But think about like new classes of investments. Think about somebody tokenizing a cell phone tower and you buy a piece of that tower. And then somebody drives by and uses worth of that tower's time. And if you own 10% of that tower, then in real time, money is transferred to you, $0.01. Or or think about tokenizing a self-driving car where you actually are able to participate. And again, in real time. These are different types of investments that we will see in the future. The infrastructure projects are limited to these giant pension plants that can actually have the scale to invest in them. Private equity has got a pecking order also where the biggest players are the first to the good projects. So I think about a different system where, again, everything is tokenized. There's much more democracy and many more opportunities. Even things like basic instruments. So when my grandfather died, I found that in his estate, he held a mortgage. And basically, he had lent the money to somebody, and that person was paying him every month. So it wasn't diversified, but it was a peer-to-peer transaction. And that's exactly what we will see in the future. So it will be a lot more cost-effective in terms of a lower Loan rate for a small company to go to peers and to be funded. And for those peers, they get a much better rate of return than investing in a treasury bond or a mortgage bond or a certificate of deposit. So, my view of what is going to unravel in the next five years is a dramatic transformation of what's available in terms of investment opportunities. So I think, again, this is linked to my vision of the future. We think about those investment opportunities and say, well, how much should I put in stocks and how much should I put in bonds? And what I'm saying is that the landscape is going to be transformed, that there will be opportunities, many opportunities that don't exist today, that will exist in the future. So people talk about the rate of return going down, the equity premium collapsing. Expect the rate of return on bonds is really low. Well, that that's fine, but think about the possibility of the landscape changing dramatically and the opportunities for different types of diversification that we've never had the opportunity to persist, participate uh, in in the past. So I think that uh, strategically, uh, there will be. Ways to invest in the near future that will be really pioneering and open the door for not just the average investor, but any investor, whether retail or institutional, the opportunities really abound.
1: Yeah, that is a, f- a fantastic way to to end our conversation today. I'm sure the three of us will already start thinking about tokenized trend following, but that is to come. Cam, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate this and I'm sure all our listeners do as well. And by the way, make sure to check out Cam's work on LinkedIn and at the Research Affiliates website from Rob, Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro mini series. In the meantime, be well.